Uh, let's continue in worship as we pray, and then we respond to a proclamation from God's Word. Father, we want to be quick to confess as we sang together that our hearts are prone to wonder, and we are so easily captivated by other things. And we pledge our love to you, and we sing songs to you, and we praise your name, and then on Monday when a challenge hits or conflict arises, we are quick to forget our dependence upon you, quick to ignore your power in our lives, and we feel like we have to go into a mode where we just take over ourselves. And we want to confess this morning our own hubris, our own foolishness, and we want to say together, Lord, we're sorry for the ways that we continue to try to seize the reins from you. And we recognize we can't do anything. We can't do anything apart from your power. And we ask this morning that you would pour out your power on us and in us. And we ask as we open up the text of Scripture that you would help us and that you would give us clear eyes to see your glory, your majesty, your mercy that we just sang about together, Lord. Give us ears that are able to hear what you will speak to us this morning through your word. Uh, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. If you have a Bible, please meet me in Isaiah 35. Uh, if you're new to church and you have no idea where Isaiah is, that's okay, no worries. Um, Isaiah is actually really right in the middle of the Bible. So this Bible that I'll be using, that I preach from, has 1,200 pages, and Isaiah starts on page 635, so it's right in the middle. Uh, so if you're new, you just go right to the middle of the Bible, and Isaiah will be somewhere uh, close. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. We have one in the back at the Welcome Center that we would love for you to have. Just stop by at the end of the service, and, and you can pick that up. We would love to give that to you. This is the first week of our Advent series called A Promise Kept. And if the idea or the, the word Advent is new to you, that's okay too. You're in good company. Uh, the word Advent, it comes from a Latin word that means coming or arrival. And of course, uh, in our context, uh, we're talking about the arrival of Jesus. So during the season, we celebrate Jesus' birth, the first Advent. Uh, which actually points us to, and I think this is probably, it's one of the most important elements of Advent, but also one of the most neglected, is it also the first Advent, the birth of Jesus, points us to the second Advent, which is the coming of Jesus. Uh, the season of Advent alerts us to the fact that not only has the kingdom of God invaded this world uh, with the birth of Jesus, uh, but because it has arrived, the kingdom that is, it will soon be consummated with Jesus' return, at least soon in terms of God's timing. So the first coming of Jesus, the incarnation, the, the reason for the season, as it were, means that Jesus' second coming is not far off in God's timing. Right now we live in the in-between, and that period between the first coming of Jesus and the return of Jesus is referred to as the last days, and we know about the last days that we see this from the text, and we're going to see it this morning, that the last days are characterized by difficulty and, and hardship and pain. About three months ago, really to the day, I think, uh, almost to the day, my father-in-law, Denny, whom I absolutely love, he lost his mother to an inoperable tumor. She was 96 years old, and of course, 96 is a good long life. Um, so it wasn't a surprise to them, but of course, it's I mean, it's sad, and it's a time of grieving and a time of mourning, and 
my father-in-law, Denny, you know, mourned the loss of his mother, my, my wife's grandmother. And after the memorial service, they had to figure out, you know, one of the most painful and difficult things is to figure out what do we do with her house and what do we do with the stuff. And so uh, Denny uh, met with uh, a guy. He was trying to think, do I try to get this? His mother lived in the same house for 75 years, and it hadn't been updated in a long time. And so he tried to think, do I get this house up to speed and up to code, and do I update it? And then put it on the market or I just sell it as is. And so he reached out to a guy. You've seen these billboards, right? You know, we buy houses. And so he reached out to a guy and they met and he said, yeah, I can, yeah, I'll buy it from you. And the guy said to Denny, my father-in-law, what do you want me to do with all of this stuff? There's tons of stuff, including an old maroon couch and tables and end tables. And, and Denny said, you know what? It doesn't matter to me. Just, just take it and, and do whatever you can with it. And the guy said, well, I mean, you understand I'm not going to be able to really sell this or get anything for this. And my father-in-law said, that's okay. Just, you know, it's fine. I just, we don't know what to do with it. We don't need it. And so anything you can do with it, whether it's give it away or auction or get rid of it, that's fine. And as we were, as Janine and I heard about that conversation, Janine said to me, and I, I think you would, you would handle that situation exactly like my dad did. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, you're not the least bit sentimental, but you are very nostalgic. And that's an interesting way to say it. I think she's exactly right. Um, sentimentality and nostalgia, they're similar concepts, but they actually are different in the sense that to, to be sentimental about something is to place an emotional uh, value on a thing, you know, a possession. And it's easy to do. A lot of people do this. A lot of families do this. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, for some families, it's, it's jewelry or dishes or, you know, old clothing or whatever it is. And, and so Janine said, you're not very sentimental. And that's true. There's, I, I can't think of a single thing that, you know, I, I feel like I really need, that I would just really grieve if I lost. But I am very nostalgic. Nostalgia is different in that it's placing uh, some emotional value, if you will, on an experience or a place. And I'm definitely like that. I mean, I've, my parents haven't lived in the home that I grew up in for, for years, but whenever I would visit, if I lived in Southern California or Grand Rapids, Michigan or Chicagoland, whenever I would go back to that home that I grew up in, I would, I would be flooded with these feelings and emotions. That's nostalgia. I would think, you know, I remember that. I remember what happened here. And I remember throwing a a tennis ball against a wall, you know, for hours in the backyard. I remember all of these things happening. That's nostalgia. And maybe this holiday season, as you, as you return home, you'll think about, that's where I did that, or that's where I learned how to do that, and, uh, and, and those feelings will, you know, will come back to you. Um, there's actually a longing inside of us for home. It's actually part of the human experience. There is a longing there is a yearning to be home, to be at that place where we had those experiences, to be at that place where we grew up and we learned and we were formed and fashioned and, uh, and grew. And, and so we have that longing for home, that place, again, that's helped to shape us. And that longing is part of the human experience. But, but there is actually within each of us, and this is a, maybe a lesser-known reality or phenomenon, there is within each of us a longing for another home, for a permanent home, 
for a future home. And even though we've never been there, it's a home that we were created for. And in that sense, we pine for it with an intense and even mysterious longing. C.S. Lewis famously said in Mere Christianity, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, that's something, but they never quite keep their promise. And then he said, and this has been quoted in, I don't know, thousands of sermons, and maybe you remember it, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. We were made for another world. We were created to be in a world where man lives in harmony with creation. And even better yet, where man lives in harmony with the Creator. A world of unfettered fellowship with God. A world where we would never experience loneliness, rejection, pain, uh, sickness, disease. We long for that eternal home. And God is actually preparing His people for that new world, for their eternal home. And what Advent tells us is because God was faithful in sending His Son, because, because God came in the flesh in fulfillment with all the promises of God, we can be sure that He will come again and bring us to that forever home. So the passage we're in this morning, Isaiah 35, we're going to answer three questions. What is our new home like? What is the way to get there? And what are we supposed to be doing while we wait? So what is our new home like? What is the way to get there? And what are we supposed to be doing while we wait for it? So Isaiah chapter 35, we're going to cover the whole passage in, in three different sections. Let me begin uh, by reading verses 1 through 4. Here reads the word of the Lord. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with, with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. So Isaiah was a prophet of God who, whose ministry took place about 700 years before Jesus was born. And at the time of the writing, the great, you know, what once was the united monarchy of Israel had been divided. So you had Israel in the north and, and Judah in the south. And when Isaiah is called to ministry, when God calls Isaiah and he follows the Lord's call, um, this is around 740 B.C., Assyria was becoming this, this great, this mammoth sort of global power taking over the world and doing so with really cruelty and savagery. Well, Isaiah's ministry spanned almost 60 years, and in 722 B.C., a couple of decades into his ministry, Assyria would overtake Israel, and thousands of Israel, Israelites were re relocated, for, you know, which is a nice way of saying it, but they actually they were taken from their homeland. They were made to be exiles, in some cases kicking and screaming. They were violently removed from their homeland. And God gives them this oracle, this prophecy, 
when they were at a devastating low point, when they were exiles in the land. And right away in verses 1 and 2, God acknowledges what they're going through. God compares their current situation to a wilderness and a dry land, verse 1 and verse 2. Now, what does wilderness signify in the Bible? Chaos, an out-of-control situation. Think about those of you who like to hunt. You've been in some of the most remote wildernesses. You just have things growing everywhere, things overtaking fruitful things. And so it's really a situation of chaos. Well, what about a desert? Desert signifies isolation, loneliness. You may have someone who said to you who's particularly lonely, they may say, I just feel like I'm just out in the desert by myself, alone. It also signifies death. In the desert, this is the place where uh, crops can't grow and sheep can't graze. There's not enough vegetation to survive. So, so God is saying, look, I know the situation you're in. He likens it to a desert or wilderness. These are references to Israel's situation at the time of their exile. But at a deeper level, these are words, wilderness, desert, dry land, that refer to all those who live in a world that's unreconciled to God, a world under God's judgment, to all those who live apart from God's immediate presence. This is a fair description, I think, of life for us right now in this sin-cursed world which awaits Christ's return. We are exiles who live in the wilderness, who are longing for our future home. When Adam and Eve sinned against God in the Garden of Eden, it sent shockwaves throughout all of creation, throughout all the universe. Everything was affected, the earth, animals, the ecosystem, weather patterns, but most of all, humanity. Because of Adam's covenantal role, it meant that he was the representative for his whole posterity, for all of humanity. The curse of sin has been passed down from generation to generation to generation, and not one of us has escaped it. Sin, death, and condemnation enter the world by one man, the Apostle Paul reminds, and not one of us has avoided the bondage. Simply put, we are sin-cursed people on a sin-cursed world living with other sin-cursed people. And I say this every year at this time, and, but I think it bears repeating. Even though we say at this time and we sing the song that says that this is the most wonderful time of the year, and we should sing that, and that's true. But I think we always have to be reminded this is not the most wonderful time of the year for everyone. In fact, I just had a lady say to me last Sunday, like with all the sadness and all of the loss and all of the loneliness that, that so many people are suffering, should we really say this is the most wonderful time of the year? She said, because I don't feel it. I don't feel so wonderful. And I think we have to acknowledge, and, and this is not, I'm, I'm not being a Scrooge here or a killjoy. We sing those wonderful songs, and I love those songs. But we have to acknowledge that this is a, for some people, this is the saddest time of the year. If you've recently lost a, a loved one, or you're in a marriage that's failing, or you have this sickness that you just can't seem to get over, or you're in a conflict that it just seems like it's never going to be resolved, or you're separated from your children or your parents, or you can't participate in all the festivities for any variety of reasons, this is actually a very painful season, and things don't always seem so wonderful. And these are 
All these things that I alluded to, these are the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin and the devastation that it brought on the earth. Words like wilderness, desert, and dry land certainly apply to us. But those words don't tell the whole story, do they? Even in this chapter, God gives us a glimpse into His grace, a promise that things will not always be broken. He will restore everything that He's created. Now, notice that God doesn't say, this is really important, notice that God doesn't say that the wilderness will disappear. Notice that He doesn't say the desert will be no more. No, God says the wilderness and the desert shall be glad. This is language of transformation, not destruction. Transformation, not destruction. The desert, Isaiah says, shall blossom like the crocus, which was a, a family of sort of flowering plants. It was some 90 different species of perennials that, that grew, and they grew from corns and vegetation. So the desert shall blossom like the crocus. The, the desert, Isaiah says, will look like Lebanon. What is Lebanon known for? The cedar trees. This de- what was once a desert will be characterized by these incredible towering trees. The wilderness and desert, Isaiah says, will be like Carmel and Sharon. What were they known for? These south regions were known that they were filled with beautiful flowers and plants and vegetation. This is what God will do with the desert. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God, verse 4 says, which refers to both the glory of God in the new creation, but also the glory of God by way of His very presence with them. So our hope is those who belong to God is... And this is, going to be, this is going to be old news to some of you, but it's going to be brand news to some of you. Our hope uh, for those who belong to God is not that He will someday whisk us away to some ethereal, spiritual realm forever where we'll just kind of float around and play ukuleles. We're actually going to be on a new physical world, doing physical things, where everything that represented chaos, destruction, and death are transformed into a beautiful new dwelling place. Here's our first point as it relates to what this new home will be like. Our new home will be a completely renovated version of our old home, only without the presence or possibility of sin. Certainly on one level, this is a glorious promise to ancient Israel. It is that, that God has seen them in their lowly estate and that He will come to their rescue. But that's not all there is to it. This is a life-changing promise to all who belong to God throughout the ages, certainly to us. God sees us. He's always had a plan to bring His people home, to restore what's wrong with this world. And this section here points to the messianic kingdom, the kingdom over which Jesus will rule in all righteousness. I made this point um, in the Advent uh, promo blurb that we sent out last week by email. Someone told me only six out of 500 people read that, so uh, that's not encouraging. But, um, but I, wrote, I wrote that, and, and, and you know, six of you read it. And uh, the point that I made was that, that the, the, the creation restored is actually going to be better than the original. And among the six who read it, I had a couple of people say, but is that really right? I mean, how could that be right? One person said to me, like, how can it be better? If everything was perfect in the garden, how can the new creation be better than the original? And I said, yes, you're right. Everything was perfect in the garden, but it was also characterized by unfulfilled potential. This is why God says to Adam, 
and Eve, you know, fill out the earth and subdue it. And one of those, one of that potentiality, one potentiality was the potential for sin, right? And so Adam and Eve sinned. They rebelled against their creator. Well, in the messianic kingdom where Jesus will, will reign, things will be even better than the Garden of Eden because unlike in the, the Garden of Eden, in the new kingdom, there won't even be the possibility of sin. Not even the possibility of sin will be there. In the new kingdom, there will be dimensions of love and joy and fulfillment that are even more incredible than what existed in the garden. This cosmic renovation will not just restore things to their original goodness, but incredibly enhance upon it. For example, you say, what's the evidence of that? There's a lot of it, but one example is, one evidence is that what began, what was once a garden will now be an incredible city. On my way to Nepal a few months ago, I had a two-day stopover in Dubai uh, for meetings, had a day and a half of meetings. And what's fascinating about Dubai is it's, it's a world-class city, this amazing city filled with some of, the, some of the most incredible buildings, but it's right in the middle of the desert. It's literally in the desert. Um, it's filled with incredible wealth and, and all kinds of the amenities of the great cities in the world. Um, and almost all the amazing cities uh, are fairly new. So let me show you a picture of just sort of a, a panoramic view of the city. Almost all of those buildings are within 60 to 70 years old. Now think about that. You, look at, you think about some of the great cities of the, of, of the earth, in places like Europe and, and the Middle East and Africa. There are cities that have been around with buildings that have been around for hundreds of years, thousands of years. And all of the, almost all the cities in Dubai are less than 60 years old. The tallest building in the world, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, in Dubai was completed only 13 years ago. The tallest building, that I had a chance to go up in that building. I actually took a selfie there. I thought I would share it with you. And here's why I share that with you. Those buildings behind me would be the tallest skyscrapers in almost all the cities in the world. And you can see how small they look. And by the way, if you're looking for gifts, I, I'm going to make this picture available as a stocking stuffer. Um, so just email me. It's, it's $19.95. Uh, a month for 12 months, but um, that, that picture can be yours. But, but what, am I, what point am I making? If that great city, which was engineered with the minds of fallen men, how much greater, how much more magnificent will be the city that is engineered and designed by God Himself? It's going to be incredible. Everything in the new kingdom will be enjoyed to the height of our possible experience. And that reality is meant to stir our hearts, to give us a future hope, to, to fill us with strength and resolve in the midst of our current struggles. Now look at verses 3 and 4 again. Uh, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and save you. Strengthen your weak hands, the prophet says. Now, when the Bible talks about the hands, it often talks about the work of our hands. So what he's saying is, this is not a time for passivity. This is a time for activity. This is a time for action. You know, we look around at this world, and, and I do it all the time, and I say, what, what in the world is going on? What is going on in our world? But that shouldn't cause us to throw up our hands in despair, but instead to put our hands to work. 
The Christian life, yes, it's, it is finished, Christ said. It's, all, it's finished. We have nothing to earn. Nothing to achieve. We don't have to earn our salvation. But as those who have been forgiven, and we'll talk about it in a minute, we should be active. Make firm your weak knees, the prophet says. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold your God. I've, I've joked over the years. Actually, I'm not really joking. I'm being serious when I say this. But um, to those of a particular counseling background, I say to them sometimes, the worst thing you can say to a person who's anxious is stop being anxious. Because what that per- the person says, what does that do? Then the person thinks, why can't I stop being anxious? What's wrong with me? Things get, just get worse from there. Uh, and that's not what's going on here. What do we say to a person who is anxious? What does the prophet say to a person who's anxious? Behold your God. He will come to save you. What do we say to someone who's anxious? Behold your God. He sees you. He's with you. He's for you in Christ. He has a plan for you that's for your good. The antidote to anxiety is a right view of God. God is just and He is fair. God has never, ever wronged you, and He never will. He will fight for you. He will bring you home. He will pour out His justice on those who have wronged you, those who have harmed you, those who have abandoned you and sinned against you. This is a call to persevere in the faith. And by the way, who's more courageous than those who know that their eternal destiny is secure? No one is. So we've seen what our new home is like. Well, what is the way back to the home? What is the way to the home that we belong in? Look at verses 5 through 7. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For the waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. Now, when we read these promises, what immediately comes to mind? The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will walk. This is what Jesus says He would bring about through His earthly ministry. When John the Baptist, he started to wonder, he hears all these rumblings like, I don't know, is this really the same guy that the prophets talked about? Is this Jesus really the Messiah we've been waiting for? So he says, hey, I want you to send some of his disciples. Go out, go find out for me. He sends them kind of on an errand. And when they get to Jesus, Jesus says this in Luke 7, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Isaiah 35 is pointing to that great transformation that Jesus would initiate and bring to fulfillment. And it wasn't just physical healing that Jesus provided. It was healing at a much more profound level. These physical healings, healing the blind, healing the lame, the miracles were only pictures of the fully restored world that Jesus would bring down to earth. 
a world where there would be no blindness. There would be no one who is hearing impaired, no sickness, no one who couldn't speak. Old Testament scholar uh, Bob Fiall writes, This kingdom will be marked by physical transformation of the people who will now see with unclouded vision and hear with total clarity. The lame will not simply be healed but given greater mobility than before. The mute will be able not only to speak but to sing rapturously. But even more importantly, this will be a world where all is right with God and God is right with all. What Jesus came to bring about and what Isaiah is pointing to was this really was reconciliation between God and man. Yes, it will end in total shalom, complete peace where all things are right, but this is a reconciliation that begins right now for those who turn to the Messiah in faith. This reconciliation, the height, we might say the pinnacle of this reconciliation is reconciliation with God that happens by the forgiveness of sins. Jesus' work was a reconciling work, and the most important aspect of His reconciling work, yeah, He's going to make all things new. Praise God for that. But the greatest of His reconciling work, the greatest aspect was bringing God and man together through the work, through His work and person. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And then he gives greater clarity to what he's talking about. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What is it? In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So this chapter in Isaiah is foreshadowing the work of the coming Messiah. He will bring a people home. But how will he do that? How will he do that? Well, because of that people's rebellion, he would have to not only come for them, he would have to live for them, and he would have to die for them. Going back to our passage, Israel was under the wrath of God. God actually used the nation of Assyria as his vehicle of discipline. They were under the wrath of God because of their disobedience. Instead of obeying God as they covenanted with God to do and loving their neighbor, they rejected His law. They offered meaningless sacrifices in the temple. They bowed to other gods that weren't really gods at all. They committed injustices against the poor and the weak. The people of Judah had turned their backs on God and alienated themselves from their Creator and Redeemer, which prompted Isaiah's pronouncement of judgment. And this is what happens to all those who disobey God. They suffer His judgment. But God promised that one day He would send a Redeemer, and that Redeemer would be faithful to do all that God had commanded Israel to do. He would be faithful in all the ways that Israel had failed, and even more than that, He would be faithful in all the ways that Adam had failed. So that all who believed in Him, this Redeemer, this one sent by God, would be forgiven and made new and spared the judgment of God. Now, the, we're in chapter 35, but Isaiah's already sort of, he's, he's predicting, he's showing, he's telling us about that Redeemer. In Isaiah 7, uh, he says this, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. 
This is the promise of the coming Messiah, the one who would be God with us. And then later in in Isaiah 9, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Israel's story, don't miss this, Israel's story is our story. We too have rebelled against God. We have been also covenantally unfaithful. We have spurned His commands. We have fallen short of God's glory. We have, since Genesis 3, been exiled from Him with no way home. We're separated from God, and we see the effects of that separation all around us, and we are left longing for a home where all is right, but it's a home that we can never get to on our own. But God has sent His Son to be faithful to the covenant that we have rejected, to obey God in all the ways that we failed, so that by believing in Him, by trusting in Him, His obedience, His covenant faithfulness would be credited to us. Here's our second point as it relates to the way. The only way to our new home will be through the obedience of another, the one promised from ages past. You've heard me say this before, but the beauty of the gospel is not just that our sins will be forgiven, although praise God for that, but also that all the blessings that are in Christ, all the blessings that Christ earned by virtue of His obedience are now ours as well. So a right relationship with God, a restored relationship with God. I was just telling my 16-year-old daughter the other day, she was talking, we were talking about how it's kind of cliche, people say that Christianity is, is not a religion, it's a relationship. And I said, yes, that's true as far as it goes, but the reality is everybody's in a relationship with God, either as a condemned criminal awaiting his righteous judgment or as a redeemed son or daughter. So there's no one who has the option of saying, you know, God, you're there. I'm going to ignore you forever. I'm going to do my own thing, cling to my autonomy, leave me alone. The God of the universe doesn't work that way. We don't tell God what to do. We don't tell God how it is. God tells us how it is. And He says, you have rebelled against me, you've fallen short of my glory, but I've sent one who will be faithful to me, who will obey me, and His obedience can be yours, will be yours uh, by faith. That home that we long for will never be reached by our obedience, by our church attendance, by the fact that we grew up in a Christian home, by any of those things by dropping off money in the Salvation Army red bucket, none of those things. We are hopelessly doomed if getting to that home is dependent upon our goodness. That home can only be reached by faith, by believing in the long-promised Redeemer. Now, that recognition helps us to make sense of this last section. Look at verses 8 through 10. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast come upon it. They they shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransom to the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So what was once a desert, what was once a a wilderness, is now a land flowing with water and trees and flower and foliage. And what was once an area that was chaos 
and a, and a way that people couldn't travel by is now uh, been transformed into a, a, tra- a landscape with a highway that leads directly to God. It's called the way of holiness because it leads to the holy city and because it's intended for holy persons. But we have to ask and answer the question, who are the holy ones? Who are the holy ones who dare tread this new highway? If it's for the perfect, we're all out of luck, aren't we? Well, in the Old Testament, to be holy meant to be set apart unto God. And those who were set apart unto God were those who had their sins covered. One theologian writes beautifully, I think, the holy are not the sinless, but those who recognize their need of forgiveness and grace. Even the foolish, inclined to stumble and stray, will find clear guidance. So the highway, we're told in verse 8, is the pathway for the clean, not the unclean. But who are the clean? It's those who have been cleansed. It's not those who have cleaned themselves up. It's those who have been cleansed by an outside, something outside. The highway to Zion, the new Jerusalem, is traveled not by the sinless, not by the perfect, not even by the most obedient, but by the humble, the broken, and the forgiven. And there's room on that road for all who would repent and believe in the Redeemer that God has promised. The way to our new home is through faith in the one who called himself the way, the truth, and the life. The question is not, what have you done this morning? The question is, in whom are you trusting? It doesn't matter. You know, you say, well, you don't know my past. You don't know the sins I've committed. You don't know what I've done. That's not what matters. What matters is, in whom are you believing? Are you trusting in the one God sent? Are you trusting in the Redeemer that God promised, the one from ages past? For those who have turned to Jesus in repentant faith, you are forgiven. You are on that way of holiness. God's not holding anything against you. He's made you new. He's made you a new creature. Yes, you're still a sinner, but a redeemed sinner. That's why I love the last part of verse 9. But the redeemed shall walk there. This is what awaits all of those who are in Christ. So as to our final question, what do we do while we wait? Here's our final point. While we wait, we live according to our new identity as those holy and set apart unto God. If you are in Christ, you are forgiven. And now your task by the, with the aid of the Holy Spirit is to live as those, to live as one who has been forgiven. Not overwhelmed with constant guilt, not you know, constantly navel-gazing, looking down, how am I doing, how am I doing, to live as one who is forgiven. If you're in Christ, you are already loved. Now what God calls you to do is to live as one who is loved, not one who's trying to earn love, not one from whom love has been elusive, but to live as one who's already loved by God in Christ. If you are in Christ, you have a home that is prepared for you. And while you wait, while we wait for it, while we long for it, while we see the unevenness of our present world, we look and we see God has been faithful. The birth of Christ is is the evidence of God's faithfulness to His promise. And we say because of the first advent, the second advent is coming. Because of God's faithfulness from ages past, we know that He is faithful still. And He will sustain us 
on this path. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a great thing and a heart-stirring thing to be reminded of this new home that is ours because of Christ. And I pray for those this morning who, who, for whom this is not the most wonderful time of year. Maybe for someone here, this is the saddest, most heartbreaking, loneliest time of the year. I pray, Lord, that you would satisfy, satisfy his longing with your immediate presence now and with a palpable sense of hope in the future. I pray, Lord, that you would comfort him, that you would come to her aid by your Spirit, reassuring yet again that you are faithful to your promises. God, help us by your Spirit to remember this morning and to believe with even more ardor that you are the faithful one. You always do what you say and what you've planned for us, your children, is good. And I want to pray, Lord, also for that person here who maybe is apart from Christ, living maybe not in what he or she believes to be abject rebellion, but, but really trying to save himself, trying to save herself by goodness or church attendance or staying you know, out of trouble, as it were. Lord, I pray that you would, I pray that for, for someone today, Lord, I plead with you that today would be the day of salvation. Cause it to be so for your glory and the good of those that you would redeem. In Christ's name, amen.